Love bombing. Yep. Manipulation. Check. Gaslighting. Uh-huh. Wow. I guess we really weren't the only ones. You got that right. Welcome to The X-Files, a new spinoff of X-Wives Undercover. Now we're sharing your stories of love gone wrong. Sometimes we laugh. Sometimes we cry. But more importantly, we stand together. Please be aware that this podcast is for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back. I'm Amber. And I'm Athena. Previously on The X-Files. In the last episode, we met Anna. We learned all about her strict religious upbringing, her terrible self-esteem that came about due to being bullied at school for her birthmark, a horrible and abusive first marriage and a subsequent second marriage that failed after 14 years. Then, good old Teddy Boy, the popular boy at school, came knocking on Anna's door and a whirlwind romance began. The added complication in this budding romance was that Ted was convicted of computer crimes and sentenced to a year in prison. Please note that in this episode, we're going to cover the remaining months of the first year of Anna and Ted together, and we'll be moving into year two. All right, girl, you ready to do this? Let's do it. Season five, episode two, Prison Girlfriend. This is a prepaid call from Ted Smith, an inmate at the county correctional facility. All phone calls are subject to recording and monitoring. To decline this call, press 9 now, and to accept this call, press 1 now. For that next year, this is what Anna heard with each call from Ted. Ted was given 300 minutes per month to use the phone, and each call was only 15 minutes. Initially, he had access to email, which was unlimited, but you had to pay for it. Phone calls were expensive, as were emails, and any extra food he might want all came at a cost. Prison is quite the moneymaker. But Ted fared pretty well because he had access to money to purchase any extras while in prison. Were you embarrassed to tell anybody that your new boyfriend was in jail? When did you start revealing, hey, I'm talking and it's turned to a romance and I really like this guy? Because you're obviously going to fly out of town to see him and everything. So when you told people, were you embarrassed at all? Were you confident? Like it, it was, he shouldn't be there to begin with. And then did any of them say, I don't know, this is kind of a red flag. Are you sure about this? Only a couple of my friends knew. By that point in time, my daughter knew because I was writing to him all the time. And at that stage of the game, we were living with my mom and my dad. And so we were very close. You know, we were spending a lot of time together. So she'd see me write and she'd be like, who are you writing to? And so I told her about him and what was going on and just like that, not necessarily that we had a relationship, but that, you know, he was a friend that I'd known from high school and, you know, just generic information that I gave her, but like family didn't know um, and not all my friends knew, just maybe two or three friends knew. So yeah, I kept it real quiet for a lot of reasons, mainly because I knew people would be like, you're insane for doing this and you know they they would judge and you know just not be real supportive 
Okay, so being that you were up to your eyeballs in graduate school, did it make it easier for you to justify that, yes, this isn't the best case scenario, but I am really busy, so this will be okay for the time being? Oh, yeah. It was like this perfect relationship because, you know, that gave me a year to finish everything that I had to finish, to do everything I needed to do, to get a job, to to move out, to get stable again, to, like recover from you know just the mess of grad school because it is it's so difficult so yeah I mean like as far as that went it was kind of nice that he was occupied I guess you would say but even him being like incarcerated he still sucked out all almost you know anything that he could suck out of me he did we wrote letters back and forth probably there had to been hundreds of letters that went back and forth he told me they used to tease him about it at at prison because like every day he would just get stacks of letters I would send him cards all the time that kind of thing and you know nobody else got mail like he got Uh, so I would write him every single day sometimes two or three times a day I would write him just a little note stick it in the mail you know I never wanted him to feel like he was lost or forgotten or not loved or you know that like he went to prison and nobody cared anymore about him so I made sure that he was always had contact and communication and he was really good about writing to me too you know he what else is he gonna do right so you know there was lots of letters where it was I can't wait to get home to you Um, you know he would send me like pictures of wedding dresses that he found in magazines and you know, engagement rings and houses and furniture. He cut things out and like make little collages of what our life would look like, you know? And so I think that could be some future faking. Oh, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Massive, now that I know what massive, that word is. <laughs> massive, massive. Agreed. Anna and Ted had talked at the airport about her not visiting him, but about a month into his sentence, he changed his tune He was lonely and sad and desperately wanted to see her. So he sent her money for airfare and a hotel so she could come to see him. Three weeks later, Anna landed in Duluth, which she described as a horribly gray and ugly place in the winter. Anna grew up in the South. She was not used to the cold weather or snow, so it was a real change for her. Anna found the prison visits to be fascinating as well as heartbreaking. Anna went to see Ted a total of four times while he was incarcerated. Three times she flew, and one time she made the long drive. Now, let's talk about Anna's life as a prison girlfriend. It was really fascinating, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about like our, our justice system. I learned about uh, the prison system and just what a complete corrupt, money-making thing it is. I mean... There's somebody's always making a lot of money on the backs of these guys' misery. That's for sure. If they wanted good food, then they had to pay for the good food. So the food was pretty uh, rancid and rotten and gross. So, like whenever I went to go visit him, I would always bring like a big bag of quarters because you know you could always get um, food out of the vending machine if you wanted to. And so you know he ate like a pig. So it would you know I'd be like five ten dollars and quarters every time he would spend it all ted was in a prison style camp which is the lowest level of security 
he was in a bunk with three other men. And this camp is located on an old military base, so the accommodations are what the enlisted men would have experienced. There was a library, a movie theater, bocce ball court, full gym, a school, softball field, and playground for the children who came to see their dads. When Anna went into the gates, she was struck by how low security the place was. She learned it was nicknamed Camp Walkaway because of how easy it is to just walk away. And no one did though, because if they did and were caught, they were sent either to diesel therapy, which meant being bussed all over the US, or they were sent up to medium security, which was very much prison. Once Anna was in the gates, she parked in a small lot and she went to a gray squat building. The first step was placing all of her items that she could not bring into her visit into a provided locker. Then she went through a metal detector and they checked anything that she was bringing in. She was allowed to bring a clear purse with necessary medication, quarters for the vending machine, which she learned very quickly to bring about $20 because Ted ate a lot of vending machine food. Other items that were allowed to be brought in during the visit were Kleenex, and if you had a baby, you could bring in formula, diapers, wipes, things like that. Next, the visitors were brought to a desk to have their names checked to make sure that they were on the visit list and they could remove anyone at any time for no reason and no notification. You had to give them your identification for the duration of the visit and they gave it back to you as you left. Once you were inside, you waited for them to call your prisoner's name. And lastly was the waiting game. You waited until they were processed and allowed to enter the visitation room. Got to be close to some of the other women in there and like, you know, the husbands were in there for just things like that really they just didn't need to be incarcerated for. They didn't take money from anybody. They didn't physically harm anybody. They didn't um, damage anything. You know, one guy was there because he had a car lot and there had been a couple of loans that weren't right. And um, so he got caught for that. There was a couple that I met. And he, he was there and his wife had also served time because he was a physical therapist and she was his billing person. And so like for, with my profession, we bill as well. And we have to use specific billing codes and different billing codes get different payout and that kind of thing. And there's certain things that you just don't really know what code to use. So you just make your best guess. And so I guess there was some of that going on. And so they got hit for um, insurance fraud. There was a family there, a whole family and this was really an interesting story. So it was a grandfather, a father, and two sons, and they were all there together. And they had been farmers. And so they all sat in the farming, you know, they weren't making money. They're going to lose the farm. It was, um, it was really bad. And so they just sat down around the table one night and they said, so what we're going to do is we're going to grow marijuana. And they said, we probably will have three good crops before we get caught. When we get caught, the most we're gonna serve is 18 months. And we figured we can make about $2 million in three crops. So 18 months for $2 million is a, is a fair trade. And so they did it, they got caught, they did their 18 months, they went home. Like there was one one woman that I met, her husband had been there for quite some time. He, he had done some pretty shady stuff, that's for sure. Some mortgage uh, fraud, that kind of thing. 
And so um, they had four little kids and they had told the four little kids that like their dad worked there, but he couldn't leave. Like his job wouldn't let him leave. So they would visit him. They visited him all the time because they were close, they were local. And so, you know, it's just dad's work. Oh my gosh. I bet that was very eye-opening. Did you ever talk about being mistreated or anything? By Because it's really, no. I never thought about everything costing because what if you don't have family or friends that are going to help you have decent food or have contact via email or whatever? What if you simply don't have that? Um. Yeah, there's a lot of guys like that. I always brought extra money and stuff and I would buy like ice cream or something like that if they were in the wait in this because the 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 inmates also staffed like the visitation room like you could check out um games or things like that and so the inmates staffed that and a lot of the inmates would do that but didn't have family that would come and visit them so that they could see other people and so I would buy them treats or what have you just so they could have something but yeah, it's a sad, prison's a sad place. And uh, so you talk about you being the only one to visit him, but I'm curious. The visitation log where you sign in, I'm assuming, is it a new page every day? Is it is it a daily sign-in, a weekly sign-in, or is it just a log with that inmate's name for the entire stay? So you could see anybody for his entire stay that's ever come there. So it was on... Um on the computer. And so you would, I could see like his log on the computer. So they logged anybody that visited him was logged on the computer. And that was not weekly or monthly. That was entire, his time. entire stay. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Why do you think that you were the only one? Like why wasn't his mom coming to visit? Why no family members and uh, not wife. even the wife? Yeah. The wife yeah. like, well, he told, he, as I found out later, he told his, he told her that he didn't want her to be there because it would be too hard on her and he didn't want her to see him that way and that, you know, he just wanted to go in, do his time and leave. And he had actually put on it where she could not visit. So even if like she showed up at the prison to visit, um, she would be turned away. I do know his mom did go one time to visit him kind of toward the end, um, which then I found out that that was in junction with a visit to his wife. Um, and so his mom went to go see his wife too, which again, you know, I, I had been in her home <laughs> and, you know, hung out and she had a graduation party for me and all this other stuff. And, you know, at the same time, she's going there to see the wife and not telling uh, me about her or her about me. Once Ted and Anna were in the visitation room, it was actually fairly lax. They could kiss when he came in and when he left. They could hold hands and they could even sit fairly close. However, if the prison guards felt that you were too close or that there was any kind of inappropriate touching, they would end the visit immediately. So they kept in line because they had a lot invested in those visits. And during the visit, they would play cards, talk, drink a lot of coffee, and eat vending machine food. They were also allowed to visit for six hours a day. And visitation was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, plus recognized holidays. But those visits were hard, and saying goodbye, especially on Sunday, was the worst. 
Anna would cry on the plane all the way home. And then she would count the days until the next visit. Can we talk about conjugal visits? <laughs> it sounds like in your letter, you did not have that privilege and they were very no. strict about that. Does anyone get a conjugal visit? Anyone no. in any jail? Uh, um, no. So what was interesting though, um, and, and this happened while he was there, is so the guys, like they, they do physicals like once a month and they do checkups and stuff. And, you know, they note anything that changes about their appearance or what have you, just in case they take off. So they have a, a you know, an accurate description. Well, all of a sudden these guys who had been there for like a year or so start coming down with like um, the same sexually transmitted infection. <laughs> yeah. And so what they found out was, like I said, this was a camp and this was very, very low security. And there was a trailer park that um, bordered the uh, camp. And there were women in the trailer park that I don't, you know, to say it delicately, you know, back that ass up to the chain link fence and the guys were. Tina's <laughs> faces are like, what? I'm oh, dying. I'm, I'm dying. Be legit. Just oh. Up. Oh. Yeah. Oh my God. And so, you know, they figured out that's where they were getting the uh, STDs, STI. Like that puts the whole new spin on back that thing up, back that ass up, that song. Every time I hear that song moving forward, I'm just going to imagine this trailer park woman sticking her ass onto a <gasps> chain link fence. Oh my God. Nothing should shock me, but of course I'm, I'm shocked. Okay, I totally went off veering. The question itself was a more serious <laughs> note because I was trying to get to. So, you guys obviously were stop laughing at me. I love it. You guys are. Bonding. I just can't stop visualizing it. That's all. That's why I'm yeah. like, but so I'm gonna be Okay, so let me try this again. So you guys were basically forced to be more emotionally connected because you're writing letters on a daily basis and getting to know each other for a full year. Did he at any point start asking you about yourself or was it still very one-sided all about Teddy Boy? You know, he would ask in the letters, how's this going? How's that going? How's your mom? How's your dad? Um, How's Elizabeth, my daughter? You know, like things like that. And of course, when I would write him, I just, I could write whatever I wanted to write. So I would just write about, I just, you know, it was kind of like, I was just trying to distract him just with daily life. You know, you, you said that about like having that emotional connection that, that developed and built. So like through that process of him being incarcerated and us mostly just writing letters, brief phone calls, um, you know, visitations four times while he was there, which were Saturday and Sunday. So Saturday, six hours, Sunday, six hours it gave me the belief that I knew him, that I had gotten to know him like on a much deeper, more um, intense level than you even would get to know somebody if you were like, like dating, dating. So I felt like, you know, I knew his soul. I knew his heart. I knew his truth. I knew, I knew like, you know, I knew his pain and I knew all of this stuff about him, you know, because it was a, was vulnerable you know to write so much and you share a lot when you're writing and um you know whenever whenever I did go visit him the visits were very 
focus, you know, there's no TV, there's no phone, there's no distractions. So, you know, we would sit and play cards and talk for six hours straight. And so, you know, you just get to really, you, you feel like you get to know somebody really, really well. And so I felt like I knew him and had gotten to know who he really, really was without the distraction of everything else. Yeah, the physical part. You had this right. very strong, in-depth, emotional connection without the interruption or the confusion, at least during that time, of the sexual relationship, which can really alter decision-making, absolutely. Knowing what you know now, and what we know now, is they kind of play off of you, and they kind of mimic how you are. Do you feel like that's what he was doing, or do you actually feel like that's how he is, or that was the real him, or do you feel like that was the pretend him that he wanted you to believe he was? If that makes um, any sense at all, but like... All of the above, honestly. Like, I think that there was a lot of it that was real, and I think there was a lot of it that was true, just knowing him. Um, he's a very, like... I mean, he'll tell you. He'll tell you all kinds of stuff, you know, but he does that. He tells you, like, all that stuff to, like, hook you and draw you in. I mean, it's not that it's lies. It's true. Um, but the reason he's telling you all of that is to play on your empathy and sympathy. And, of course, I'm an empathetic person. I'm a caring person. And, you know, it's just kind of, like, just my nature to be empathetic and to give people the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, I don't lie to people, so... I just kind of assumed that other people didn't lie as well, you know. Um, some of the stuff that he was doing and saying was very manipulative, you know, trying to get me to come visit him more often, even whenever he knew it was going to be a real hardship just in life for me to do that. And when he didn't get what he wanted, he would throw fits and he would get petulant and pouty and he would punish me by, like, not calling or by not writing me letters, things like that. It took me so many years to figure this out, so many, honestly, probably until this last year that I couldn't quite put my finger on it because I was confused with, well, Brandon did do this or that. There was this nice thing, but when you really dug deep, it always benefited him somehow. And it sure. could be something that was maybe an emotional thing that fulfilled him, a physical thing that fulfilled him, but no matter what, that nice thing must have benefited him somehow if he was doing something nice. Which leads me to the next question. At that time, at that time frame, while he's in um, jail and you're in this relationship with him, now looking back, do you feel like any of that was, were there real parts that you felt were real or healthy? Uh, I wouldn't go as far as healthy. <laughs> That's a stretch. Um, but real, yeah, I kind of do. I do feel like that he really did. I, I feel like he did like me. I felt like he really did enjoy like spending time with me. Um, he and I uh, think a lot, a lot alike to a degree. Um, you know, our conversations were always great and funny. And, and um, we just never, ever stopped having things to talk about. So I do. I don't think that that can be fake to that extreme. I think that some of it was real. And I think some of it was future faking. I think a lot of it was future faking. Trying to keep me hooked, um, invested, um, you know, that, does that make sense? Like, yeah, he, absolutely. He wanted, 
Yeah, he wanted to keep me on the line for sure. Meet Anna's daughter, Elizabeth. Here she discusses the first time that she had heard about Ted and how she got to know Ted while he was in prison. So the first time my mom told me about him, uh, I was a freshman in high school. And she had told me that she had this friend that she had started hanging out with. Uh, They started dating. You know, she didn't really, she didn't bring people into my life unless it was serious because of, you know, the divorce with my dad, all that good stuff. I didn't meet him before he went to federal, but he had actually come to one of my plays that I was in. And, you know, he would take my mom out on dates and my mom was happy. You know, she seemed genuinely happy and I hadn't seen her happy in a long time. You know, once I knew about him for a while, then my mom told me that, you know, he was going, going to prison, uh, told me why. And I don't know why I felt such a connection with him, but I started writing to him while he was gone uh, as well. And, you know, I told him a lot of stuff. So, yeah, that's kind of how I got to know him and first was introduced to him. I I talked on the phone with him a few times when he was there. Um, And I don't know if my mom has told you much about my dad. My dad could be really awesome and then he could be, you know, beating the shit out of my mom the next or kicking my brother out of the house, you know, that kind of thing. And because of that, I I was looking for a male figure in my life that seemed kind and he was kind. And I think that's why, because he was kind and my mom was happy. That's all I ever wanted to see. You know, we hadn't seen the side of him that we later saw. In addition to the visits and phone calls, Anna and Ted could also communicate through email, which is through a secure server, and each email cost 10 cents. But after only one month, Ted called Anna and told her that they had actually given him email access by accident. And because his charges were computer crimes, he was not to have computer access. Anna was devastated to lose their email communication, as it was a more immediate and unlimited way to interact with one another. But after about five months, she received an email from another inmate, one that she had met at a visitation, and he was a nice enough guy. She quickly realized that it was not the inmate, it was Ted. He had convinced the inmate to give him his password. So this went on for a couple of months. Then one day, after she had visited him, he called her and told her, that after the visit, the CO took him to a room and told him that they knew what he was doing. Next, Ted was tried and found guilty. He was then placed in the hole, or solitary confinement, as punishment. Ted was then locked up for 23 hours of the 24-hour day. Ted would have to remain in this 8x8 cell with two other men for the next four weeks. You've had a little bit of education in the Cluster B, as we talked about during your educational training, um, and and just life's lessons in general, I'm sure, were kind of like shooting up red flags. Was that happening? Were you sensing red flags in any of his actions or during your relationship while he was incarcerated? Um, 
Not not too much. I mean, not, looking back at it now, I can see some red flags and some things that went on. There's no one saying, oh, hey, you know what? This guy, hey. you know, that wasn't happening because, you know, I didn't tell anybody. But, you know, one thing that did, that was a red flag that I did not really pay attention to was him, um, him you know, I think I wrote about how he got put in uh, solitary or the hole. And, you know, that was an example of him, like, not thinking the rules apply to him, not thinking he has to follow the rules that everybody else has to follow, and also having zero issue with pulling other people into his shenanigans, knowing full well that they, if they got caught, all of them were going to be in a lot of trouble. The people that were involved with this whole thing, with the email and this and that, and allowing him to use it... Did you ever see those people ever again? Is this the truth or could this been a num- another big scheme or shenanigan to give you an excuse as to not being able to contact your email anymore because he wanted to use that time to maybe speak with his wife? No, because otherwise told me what was going on. Okay. Okay. Good to yeah. know. Yep. Their their husbands were there. They they were involved or they saw it all go down. So whenever he got put into the hole, I didn't know it because he could not communicate whatsoever other than letters. And so he asked one of his friends who, whose wife I had talked to quite a bit to let me know. And she let me know that he was in the hole. So no, I mean, that's fact. Okay. You know what? I, I will say it is such a good point you made. Such a good point that you couldn't have seen a lot of red flags because you're right, there wasn't a lot of communication surrounding him in the real world where people, like they will later on, friends of yours that reach out who say, this wasn't very appropriate, or your son, um, you didn't have that to your advantage at all. All you had was face value, his word, and and that is that is not your fault. That is just how it was. That's tough. So anybody, anyone would have been fooled by by that or taken advantage you could take advantage so easily just by with that situation that month in the hole destroyed both ted and anna he had no phone privilege and no visits they were however able to write to one another so they did so daily and sometimes several letters a day went back and forth between the two ted's letters at that time were hard to read He was despondent and angry. Ted was very well aware that accessing the computers to email Anna was a risk, but he did it anyway. The other inmates involved were also found guilty and they had much harsher penalties than Ted. Anna believes that Ted blamed her for being punished and it was one of the things that he tucked away to lob at her like a grenade later. Up until Ted's last day in prison, He called Anna until all of his minutes were used up. She couldn't help but notice that her name was the only person ever listed on Ted's visitor call log during his entire stay there that year. After Ted was released from the hole, he had found out that he was no longer getting his six weeks good time credit. Therefore, he would have to serve the full time. That meant he would serve the full 11 months there and then one month in a halfway house. Ted had changed the designation of the halfway house he would be spending his last month of prison to Oklahoma. How long was it 
in his stay where he did get put in the hole for contacting you via someone else's email. And did he say something specifically to you once he got out of the hole and said, it's your fault that this happened? He never did. I mean, he knew it was his fault. I didn't have any idea that it was a big deal, that it was a huge problem and no clue. None. Because if I had, I would have been like, yeah, don't do this anymore. No one would know that though. It's like, (laughs) I know. Yeah, exactly. That's a, pretty innocent thing for sure and this is my first go around as a prison bitch so right. I'm, <laughs> I'm learning the laws and the rules as i go here you first know? and last so, time we should say for sure <laughs> never again for damn sure that must have been so confusing when all of a sudden the contact ended and you're probably like what the f is going on where are you your mind so, must have been spinning kind of how it went down they like to they like to play games with you in prison the guards the COs, and the the people who are in charge they like to, to mess around with you so they found they knew about it um before they did anything about it they let it go for a while and they just watched it they did that to like gather evidence they were all of our phone conversations were recorded so they had recorded phone conversations where he had kind of alluded to what he was doing uh he called me after that visit and said that they had pulled him after I left and said, you know, we know who she is. We know what you're doing. We know about the email. We know all of this stuff. And, you know, there is going to be a hearing and there will be consequences. So they just kind of like, they told him that and he called me and he told me and, and, you know, but then like a month or so went by and they didn't do anything. And so he kind of had the belief that they weren't going to do anything. And then one day, you know, I got the call from that the friend of mine and they were like yeah they did a, a hearing today and took him straight to the hole what type of behavior did you notice when he got out of the hole and um that and then if you could also explain to us what um for people who don't know which i don't know that terminology what the discard phase what does that actually even mean so when he got out like i would call it like maybe like a mini less discard but more devaluation at that time, he didn't say that he blamed me, but like I said, he tucked it away and it came out later. When he got out of the hole, first of all, he was emaciated, just super thin because they don't allow them any access to anything when they're in the hole. Like they don't get a commissary, they don't get anything. They, He got a paper, pencil, he didn't get a pen, he just got pencil, paper, pencil, and um, he got, I think he got a book a week or something like that while he was in there. He was quiet and he was, um, it wasn't good. It wasn't a good thing for him. Not at all. Um, and there so, he is secretly blaming you. Like if you weren't in his life, he wouldn't have tried to email somebody. He wouldn't have gotten caught. His, his prison sentence wouldn't have been extended. Or I know you'd mentioned they had taken what, six weeks off and then they decided to add it back as a, his punishment. Can we finish out that thought on the, because Athena asked about what is the discard phase. Can we go really quickly through the three? So the idealization is the love bombing, essentially. Then the devaluation, which is where they kind of take you off the pedestal, essentially. And then the discard, we'll see that in another episode. So this pattern is, is most often seen and associated with people with narcissistic personality disorders. Um, but it's also seen in other types of disorders. So like a narcissistic personality disorder, the, the key word there is personality. This is who they are. 
their behaviors and actions feel normal to them. It feels like, you know, it's just what you do, right? So kind of how that looks is like the initial phase is the love bombing where they're super attentive and super into you just really fast. Like, it's like a whirlwind. It's, it's your head is spinning and your heart is pounding. And, you know, every time you turn around, they're doing something so wonderful and they are in constant contact with you and you just feel so very important and loved and needed. And um, they make you feel like, you know, they sweep you off your feet in a way, you know. Um, it's fairy tale feeling almost. They tell you they love you very, very quickly. Um, usually four to six weeks in, they are telling you that, that they love you. And, you know, you're just like, there's a term called um, limerence. I don't know if you've heard of that term, limerence. So it's like kind of what happens during that time frame. It's like this limerence, it, it feels like um, fireworks, sparklers, uh, you know, the starry eyes that you're just like feeling just so incredibly amazing. And you're just like, you didn't know that it could be this good. You had no idea that you would meet someone like this, you know, and it's, it's a lie. You know, it's a, it's a lie. It's not true. It's not real. So then you can move from love bombing pretty quickly into the, to the devaluation phase. And then from devalu like devaluation is when kind of like you, we're saying like uh, you are on a pedestal with these guys and they really do think and they see you as perfect. You, you are, they create you in their brain, like the you that they want you to be, that they need you to be, that they want you to always be, they create in their mind and they don't tell you about it. So you've got no idea. So the first time that you show them that you're a human being, that you're fallible, that you make mistakes, that you say the wrong things, that you do the wrong things, and sometimes you look like crap, and sometimes, you know, you, um, that you just make mistakes, that you're a human being. Um, it's not necessarily that you get not completely off the pedestal, but it gets a little lower. Then they start to like, just kind of pay attention to all the negative things about you, and so that just kind of grows and grows and grows of dissatisfaction with you which then can go into the discard phase. So the discard phase of this relationship would look like um, not talking to you as much, withdrawing from you, um, starting to verbally abuse you, verbally cut you down, um, make you feel like something's very, very wrong, but you, you just don't know what it is. Basically, you feel like they've got a foot out the door because they do. They've probably got a foot and a half out the door. Usually at this point in the game, they've identified their next victim. There's someone else that they've come across that they're building a pedestal for just in case, you know. But the thing is, is this cycle repeats itself again and again and again in these in, in these narcissistic relationships. It's not just one cycle. It's not a one and done. So that's kind of like that cycle in a nutshell. And as I, you know, move forward and talk more about the story and what happened, you'll you'll see this cycle. It happened again and again and again. It happened. Even after he left me, divorced me, moved in with the other woman and was planning a marriage with her, he still was doing this cycle. He would still love on me, devalue me, and discard me. But it was a lot faster. How, um, I hope this doesn't come across wrong, but how, how does the normal person, if someone who is trained and actually knows this, and you can't see it. How, how does the normal person who doesn't know these terms, how do they like see it and stop it before it goes on and on and on? Like, is there such a thing where regardless if you're trained about red flags and 
these terms, when you're in it, you're in this weird bubble and your brain just can't accept it. Is that coming across terrible, like a complete asshole? You know what I mean? No, I'm not trying at to all. Like, sort of, not at all. Like, how I do think- you, how do we, like, we're trying to help our listeners, like, these are the signs, but are you literally incapable of seeing them when you're, like, in this love-bombing state? I think it must be so tough. You know? I think, but I will say, if you grew up with a parent, a friend that did that to you, um, somebody recognizing your childhood, and maybe you'd recognize it in a relationship as you got older. The thing is, is like when I was in school, it was like, you know, whenever we were learning, the only time that we really talked about MPD was in my diagnostics class, and it was like a night. You know what I mean? It was like, these are the hallmarks of their actions and their behaviors and their personalities. It didn't. They, we didn't learn about that cycle. We didn't learn about love bombing. We didn't learn about ah. this part of the evaluation. We didn't, I didn't know. We didn't learn about any of that stuff. And it wasn't until, like, I started to realize that something was really not okay with this guy. And that was, like, that was about a year after he got home where it was just like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? That I start to, started to kind of put the pieces together that um, maybe the FBI was right. Maybe uh, this, yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah, and I'd I, like to I, add one thing in really quick, too, Anna and Amber. This happened with Amber and myself, and I want our listeners to be aware of this too. Going to a, a marriage counselor, a therapist, somebody called a therapist, somebody called a counselor, they are not Mm-mm. always going to specialize. Most of the time they're not, unless they state it, specialized to recognize or deal or talk about or treat cluster B personality disorders. So when I went... I remember Brandon or Ben on our podcast schmoozed this counselor so well that she was basically talking shit to me and had me in tears as I'm pregnant telling her that my, you know, husband or seemed to be, I don't even know what, like cheated on me. And it was like, it's all in her head. I really didn't, you know, and he's so manipulative that this woman could do it because that's not her specialty. Mm-hmm. And so I guess my advice, and then Amber had to deal the same thing. Oh, I left in tears too. And she yes. was like, Oh, well, you're just going to have to accept what, what he did to you and move on. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. So well. I guess my advice would be if anybody's listening to this and they're noticing traces of narcissism, which I know people can throw that term around loosely, but even if you are a wee bit, tiny bit, noticing narc red flags, I would make sure I wouldn't waste my time on a counselor or therapist that doesn't tell you that they do recognize those types of specialize in it. It's really hard because part of it too, I think is um, a degree of denial because you really want it to be true. I mean, you really do. I wanted it to be real. I wanted it to be true. You know, I I wanted this to be what my life was going to be. So... I also, you know, I think it's really important to note too that these these people they know their targets. They know they know their target audience. And narcissists do not target women, people, individuals who are not intelligent, who are not loving, who are not caring, who are not compassionate. They know the kind of person that they're targeting. And honestly, you know, if you've been targeted by one of these people, um you know, the truth of the matter is, is you're a pretty awesome human being because they don't target people who aren't. Is it such a thing too, is like really having, you know, knowing that you personally, when you're in it, wanting to believe these things, having a network of people that can 
help you and be your wing people as far as seeing those for you because they're not emotionally invested. And maybe we can kind of tell or teach people who are on the periphery, periphery, how to approach someone where maybe they're not seeing the red flags because they're literally incapable and they're kind of just in it. If you have a friend or a loved one that's in a relationship like this, um, the chances of you being able to talk to them and have them hear you and to believe what you're saying is pretty slim. My strongest advice for somebody who sees a friend or, or someone that you care and love about, love going through, like, like in a relationship like this, is you just have to stick with them. Um, because they're going to need you real bad at some point in time. And if you have been like judgmental or negative or non-supportive with the relationship, whenever the rubber meets the road and shit hits the fan, you know, they need somebody, you need, you know, you, they, they're going to need somebody to turn to. And, you know, if you've been as supportive as you possibly could through the whole deal, they're going to turn to you. But if you've been judgmental or whatever, they, they might not, you know, so you want to keep open communication with people who, who you can see these red flags. You know, I, I kind of dealing with that right now with someone that I love a lot and I can see some red flags, but um, they're not open to hearing it. I tried and they're not open to hearing it. So instead, my approach is that I'm going to stay very close to this individual and supportive and caring and loving and, and uh, positive with this individual. And when the shit hits the fan, cause it will, you know, they're gonna have a safe place to go. And that's really all you can do. In October of 2012, Ted was finally released. He flew to Oklahoma and his mother picked him up at the airport. And according to Ted, Anna was not allowed to be there. Only a family member could transport him to the halfway house from the airport. And although Anna knew she wasn't supposed to be there, she couldn't help herself from driving there just to get a glimpse of the man she so desperately loved and missed. And with his flight information in hand, Anna arrived early at the airport and waited for him to arrive. She knew she could not even talk to him, but she just wanted to see him. Ted did not know that she was even doing this, so Anna stood and she waited for most of the afternoon. Ted's flight came in and she stood at the top of the escalators to the baggage claim, where she knew that he would have to go. But she never saw him at the airport, and that airport is tiny. And to this day, she has no idea why he lied and insisted he was there when he was not. But with Ted now checked into the halfway house, it was a whole new world for him. Ted now had much more freedom and he could use the payphone anytime and for any length of time that he wanted. And this is when Ted began calling Anna nonstop and keeping her on the phone for hours. Anna also went shopping for Ted to buy him clothes and food. She was allowed to bring it to him, but could not visit as she was not family. The two would eat lunch together and dinner at a place across from the facility. They had a catering agreement with him, and it was a public place, and she could eat with him there at least. But Ted expected her to eat every single lunch and most of dinner with him. So what happened to all of his belongings from whatever state he originally lived in? Were those moved down to him? Do you ever notice 
or see him move his belongings down to Oklahoma? No. No, the only thing that he brought with him um, was just clothes and, you know, some, like, more, like, pictures and things like that. Just kind of small items. He didn't bring anything large, like furniture or uh, anything like that. He had like a coffee table that he loved that was really important to him. And that did make the trip down. But um, other other than that, no, he didn't have anything. He didn't bring anything with him. I'm still very curious about this airport pickup. Who? <laughs> Me who, too. <laughs> who did or didn't pick him up? And why was he a no-show? Like, what? do you have any guesses on what happened on... You know, his mom, right? Supposedly, his mom. His mom supposedly was picking him up in the airport, you know. And it was like one of those deals where, you know, the future faking letters, where I want you to be the one that picks me up from the airport. In fact, I'm going to fly you to meet me midway, and that way you can fly with me the second leg, and so we can see each other and we can spend time on the airplane and da 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 da. And so, you know, those those were the plans that I was making. And then all of a sudden, it comes up where he's like okay, so they're really watching me and, you know, I could get in a lot of trouble if they saw me with you. And so we can't do that because I could actually end up having to go back and I don't want to do that. I just want to come to the halfway house and just get this done. I wasn't planning to like run up to him or anything like that. I just wanted to see him, you know, I just wanted to look at him and just see him um, not in a, you know, tan jumpsuit. I just, you know, I just wanted to see him. So I got to the airport like 30 minutes early and I stood at baggage claim and I watched and like, it's a tiny, our airport, it's a tiny airport. And if someone's coming in and out, you see them. And I never saw him. I never saw his mom. I never saw his stepdad. I never saw anybody. So I don't have, and I, to this day, I do not know what happened with that. But um, there was something sketchy. There's no way I would not have seen him. There was just literally no way. Well, okay, so what did he do for you either prior to going to jail, during or after that you feel like kind of hooked you? Like what kind of things was he doing to fulfill your your needs or your desires or your your wants in a relationship? This is going to sound so sad and so pathetic. No, we've it's us. We've all done it. <laughs> yeah, he paid he paid attention to me. You know, he gave me attention. He um praised me. He flattered me. Um, it had been a long time since anybody had told me that I was pretty or attractive or sexy or um, it had been a long time since anyone had valued me, um, listened to me, um, even though he didn't really listen to me all that much. I mean, it was enough to where, you know, I, he it hooked me because when you're with a person like this, it's like this huge bright shining magnificent spotlight is on you and it's and they just turn this attention and focus on you and you just feel like um it's like the best drug on the planet by this time anna had graduated and was working in her first job which was kind of ironic because she was working with felons to get them into diversion programs Anna worked full-time while raising her daughter. At this point, she was still living with her parents because she had to quit working to complete her clinicals for her degree, so she was unable to work. Anna had made the decision to wait to move into her own place because her and Ted had planned to get a place together when he had left the halfway house. 
But looking back, Anna realizes that it was super irresponsible. Ted's felony was not violent, sexual, or involved stealing money. So because of this, she felt comfortable with him in her life and in her daughter's life. She had seen zero behaviors to give her any pause. So once Ted was discharged from the halfway house, he moved in with his mother as he was required to be with a family member for another 30 days. But once that time was up, the plan was that they would find their place together. But that did not happen. Shocking, right? Now he has a felony on his record, so obviously that's going to be a bummer. Did he at this point confess to you that he was disbarred from being attorney? And what was his plans on for for work, essentially? Let's talk about the felon thing for a sec, because I think um, people don't really understand how that works if they're a federal level felon. So you have your state level felon, and so that you have a DOC number, Department of Corrections, right? When you're a federal felon, that is Bureau of Prisons. And so it's a, it's two different things. And the vast majority of employers and of um, apartments, that kind of thing, landlords, they only run a state check. They don't run a federal check. So, cause a federal check is really expensive. It's, it's kind of easier when you're a federal felon to get away with that because they just don't run those kinds of checks and they don't show up on a state check. So that kind of makes it a little easier if you're federal because you can hide it better. So he told me that he had been disbarred in his home state, you know, where he was convicted, he was just automatically disbarred. But where I live, he was, uh, he had been admitted to the bar here um, when he finished law school. And so what he did here was he withdrew from the bar. And so if you withdraw from the bar, it's different than if you get disbarred. Because if you withdraw, then you have the chance of being readmitted to the bar, um, if that makes sense. Interesting. So he opened this the business that I think I wrote about, you know, it was mm-hmm. like, a, uh, like a consignment type business. By the time Halloween came around, Ted had officially been out of prison for about one month. While Anna's daughter hosted a Halloween party, Anna and Ted decided to go eat while her daughter was with her friends. Ted was to pick her up by seven, but he never showed up. He wouldn't answer her phone calls and he did not reply to any of her texts. Not to mention that he's not answering any of her communication on the phone that Anna had paid for. Ted finally answered at 10 p.m., three hours later, and his excuse was, he just didn't feel like it. This was a portent of things to come for sure. Now that Ted was home, red flags began to pop up at an alarming speed. They went trick-or-treating with her friend and her kids, and the entire time, Ted moaned and complained about how awful his life is, how miserable he is, and how badly done he was. At this point, he was working for his father-in-law, and he expected to be placed in a management role. And instead, Ted was handed a broom. Obviously, he was not pleased. And according to Ted, he was robbed of his position due to others' egos and personalities. But let's face it, it was clearly his ego and Ted's own personality. 
This is when Ted also started disappearing at times. He went from not being able to get enough of Anna to ghosting her for days and then making her feel like she was the insane one when she tried to contact him. And let's not forget that Ted and Anna had planned to get a home together, but suddenly he was balking at signing a lease even when they had found the perfect place. And oddly enough, Ted did finally lease a house close to her parents where she was living, but never asked Anna to move in with him. Getting acclimated back into society did not seem to go well for uh, Mr. Teddy Boy. So, did you feel this was a temporary, like, oh, poor me thing? Or was this actually his true personality starting to emerge? So, I believed it was just, like, adjusting. Like, it was just an adjustment period. I mean, you know, I tried to put myself into his shoes and think about how difficult it would be to have my entire life blown to smithereens to lose my career to lose my license to lose my family to lose my home um to lose everything that was real and true in my life to just lose it it's gone and you can't get it back you know just not going to get it back not ever um i think i probably would be bitter and scared and angry and upset and deeply concerned so some of the things that I saw in his behaviors and his actions, I felt like were probably fairly understandable. It wasn't until, you know, maybe, I don't know, like a year or so went by that I started to realize, no, this is just who this motherfucker is. When he started ghosting you, did you, huh. was that your kind of like, okay, time to go into FBI agent mode to find out where he was? Or did you, I don't know, just kind of let him come to your, I, I don't know. I got all crazy and had to go figure out what's what. Especially so, when he's love bombing and he's so attentive and he's, it's so intense. And then to ghost you, I mean, Amber's right. Like for me too, I would have been like, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm going to put a tracker on his car, but I definitely no, would have yeah. for sure been researching and trying to lightly question without looking super yeah. needy. But and we might spin it. Right? And if you remember, this is like peak social media time. So everyone's putting everything publicly on social media. So you probably get a lot of information, I guess. So um, interestingly enough, he had zero social media at this, at this time. Or so you knew. So that I knew. Right. Um, as far as I knew, there was no social media. There was no, you know, he did not have like a smartphone or anything like that because he just came out of prison. So he did not have anything. He had, he had no computer. He didn't have a smartphone, you know, that kind of thing. And also to be really honest with you, I was kind of afraid to poke the bear with him. Um, because if I did poke at him in any capacity, if I questioned him at all about anything, he would revert to rage and, um, well, I'm just not going to talk to you anymore. You're too needy, blah, blah, blah. And so then he'd be like, you know, I don't have to deal with this bullshit. I had to answer all these questions all the time in prison and I had to answer to everybody and everybody wanted to know where I was and I'm not going to tolerate that whenever I'm out, I'm just not going to do it. So, you know, if you don't trust me, then we just need to end this relationship now. And of course me, I'm just like, no, 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 no. It's fine. I trust you. I trust you. I get it. You need your time. You need to, um, you know, you need to have your alone time and you need to have time to, to disconnect and to check out. I get it. 
life is overwhelming right now and you, you just need that time to not. So, you know, my fear of losing him kicked in and I was terrified of losing him at this point because by now I've sacrificed a massive amount for him. What was his explanation as to why he went ahead and got his own place when you were supposed to do it together? He was saying that he just needed to be on his own, to live on his own for a little while, that he just wasn't ready to make that step to, to live together. He wanted me to just keep living at my mom and dad's house and saving money while I was working. And, you know, I, I did move some of my things into that house. Like, you know, I, we set up a bedroom for my daughter and, you know, I moved some clothes in and stuff like that. But, you know, every time that it would be time to pull the trigger and actually do it, you know, he would be like, I'm just not ready yet. I don't, I just don't think that the time is right. I think that we should do this or that or the other thing. And so, you know, I just kind of went along with it because I believed the time was coming and it was coming very quickly that we would move in together. Anna and Ted decorated Ted's home for Christmas that year and they spent the holiday together and it was fabulous. Anna was not invited to his family celebration but Ted was invited to all of hers and everyone who met Ted loved him. He could turn it on when he wanted to. And he could also turn it off once he thought you were hooked. That was a weird Christmas for Anna, as were all of the following ones that they were together. He had given her a zip-up fuzzy robe that looked like her grandmother would have worn. It was truly hideous. Anna realized that Ted did not actually know her at all. He had not tried to know her. Ted controlled all of their conversations, all of the interactions, and most of the conversations were always based around him. Like after he told the mom he loved you and everything was great, were you like, well, what the heck? Why didn't I get an invitation? Yeah, I was really confused because the same thing happened at Thanksgiving. Like he went to my family Thanksgiving and everything, but Thanksgiving night, whenever it was time to go to his family, I was by myself and he said that it was because um, there was a lot of the family that was going to be there for Thanksgiving and they didn't all know about me and he just didn't want to have to answer a bunch of questions about me. Fact of the matter is, you know, they all knew about the wife and they did not know about me um, other than his mom. Christmas, he just said it was the same type of a situation that, you know, all this family was going to be in town. It was just going to be a lot and, and it just he just didn't feel like it was time for me to meet all the family. I think that's it for this episode because yeah. then we're going to go into when he does get the consignment stop store and all the women that are flirtatious <laughs> and all that stuff. Yes. So. And my and stolen I... engagement ring. Yes. Oh my God. Right? <laughs> yeah. Paralleling lives, all of us. I'm telling you, man. No. I got a recycle least, ring too. <laughs> I mean, at least mine was Same. real. It, it was real. Mine was not. Well, mine I think the real. little diamonds were real. The main ones weren't real. But they're like diamond yeah. chips. That's what yeah. I got. Next week on The X-Files. You know, like in the letters and everything, it was it was all just like gung-ho. When I get home, we're going to get a house. You're going to move in with me. We'll get married. Everything's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Then he gets home and he's like, I didn't say any of that. I had ruined everything by asking him, you know, about the things that he had lost, that I was grasping, desperate, you know, all those things. I remember he pushed me out of the, his vehicle in the parking lot of the grocery store. 
and you know slammed the door into Bob. I had given everything, and then to him for him to say, you know, upon further reflection, I don't need you, and said he never wanted to talk to me again, um, that he would never speak to me again, not to reach out for, to him, not to do anything. That time frame, like April, May, you know, I feel really bad for my daughter. I just feel so bad for her because she didn't have a mom those two months because I was so broken and so devastated that like all I could do was get up and go to work and come home. That was all I could do. He started getting weird again, just like he had done. And uh, right before he broke up with me in April, he started getting um, distant, not answering his phone, not being as available, not contacting me as much. And I'm just like, you motherfucking piece of shit. I know exactly what's coming. Hey, X-Fans. If you haven't quite got your full fix of X-Wives Undercover or the X-Files, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and join our Facebook group. Make sure to also follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us a five-star review.